Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Modern Multifamily. As you can tell, I'm not Mike Wolber. Mike has graciously allowed me to take over the interview chair to bring you an incredibly important episode. Mike and I decided to have a little fun uh, with this episode and flip the experience. Today, Mike Wolber will be your guest, and I hopefully will not screw up this hosting gig. Let's get into it. Mike, welcome to your show. Matt, thanks for doing this with me. And how exciting is it to be doing it live for multifamily leadership? Yeah, absolutely. What an incredible experience for us. Uh, really looking forward for your listeners to learn a little bit more about you uh, and really uh, tap into your knowledge base. Uh, what are three things the audience should know about you that you haven't shared on a podcast before? All right. Three things about me that I've not shared with this audience. One is that in 2014, when I married my wife, April, 10 minutes before we got married, a wildfire had broken out and we had to actually move our wedding mid ceremony. And the cool thing behind that, not only did we still get married, our wedding actually went viral. We were the number one ranked article on BuzzFeed in 2014. We were featured on The Ellen Show, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, literally went viral over the course of about six months. Wow. What? <laughs> Nobody objected, obviously, and the, and the wedding proceeded very well. But wow, that's incredible. How, how many guests did you have, would you say? We had 150 guests and Destination Wedding and Bend, we planned on about 100 coming, but almost everybody went. we invited came. But it was, a, it was a really special day. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. What an unbelievable experience. Very cool. And uh, let's go two more. So I'd say that the second one is that I started my career at Nike, uh, something that a few of you know, but I don't talk about it a lot on the podcast. Uh, and I think for me, it's probably one of my secret sauces in multifamily because like we always talk about what are other industries doing. I think that's one of the cool things that I was able to bring in was a really unique perspective of what best in class marketing looks like in the enterprise, something I was really fortunate to experience for about five years at Nike. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, what a again a unique opportunity. Uh, you know, sales uh, is sales. I mean, there's a lot of uh, cross promotion that happens, but Nike really uh, changed the game in, in in just terms of overall sales. But um, I'm sure there was formative uh, moments in your career there. But we'll definitely, I'm sure, touch into those a little bit later on in our discussion. For sure. And I'd say number three, I'm from Alaska. And that's something that some people might not care about. Some might think it's cool. For me, it definitely makes me a storyteller. Grew up in Alaska, did just about every outdoorsy thing you can imagine. Felt very lucky to grow up with a mom and dad who did all the outdoor things. And so I definitely have all sorts of stories in my back, back pocket. Yeah, I love that. It's it's hard to think about a, a, somebody that's really involved in the technology front, very comfortable in that sphere, but also you know, can fight a grizzly if, if need be, can, can tell about catching salmon and, 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 and walking in the, the great Alaska outdoors. That's awesome. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, right. Something like that. Very good. Well, Mike, you know, starting out your day uh, in, a, in a great mental and physical headspace is, is something that, that's very valuable to me as, as a person as well. And I really, starting out your day appropriately or starting your day out on the right foot is something that allows, in my opinion, really allows us to accomplish the tasks that are in front of us. And, and every day is a little bit different in our, in our world, but how do you kind of start out your day? What does it look like? How do you prepare for the tasks in front of you? Yeah. So I'm a really proud father and husband, got two kids, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And ever since my world was rocked by having the first one, let alone the second one, I really went all in on something I call invisible time. And so when I'm on the road, like I am today, getting to spend time with you, Patrick, carrying the team or at home, you can always find me first and foremost, 
open and awake before my family is. And I call that invisible time. So I really like to start the day out with 60 to 90 minutes of a combination of exercise and really spending time just focusing on the task at hand that given day. And I really find that by the time that the day's starting for everyone else, it's almost like a, a superpower because I'm recharged and ready to rock. But that's a huge part about kind of how I start each day. And then I call it bookends, but I really like to finish the day with some reflection and really intentionally spending just a few minutes, whether it's scanning my calendar, did that meeting give me energy or did it, did it drain me? So I can really think through how I can wake up that next day to make it you know incrementally better. I definitely believe in that 1% rule of incrementally improving every single day. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And uh, being a you know, husband and father as well, I, I've realized that that initial time in the morning, for me, it's about 4 a.m. when the alarm goes off, get on my gym clothes and go to the gym. One, it allows me to be healthier, right? That's really critical. But it also allows me time to thought process through maybe some difficult challenges or tasks. But really, it, it gives me that moment where I can just focus, right? My son's not up. He's not destroying our house. He's not, you know, constantly wanting attention. And, and more importantly, I think, you know, it allows us to be more present for our children, which is really, really important. And um, that, that invisible time is a beautiful, beautiful concept uh, and, and very, very valuable. Highly encourage everybody. Yep, absolutely. Take, takes that opportunity. Great insight. Um, so you've already touched upon this, but you, you started out uh, at Nike. Um, aside from, you know, just do it being your all, all in mantra, right? Uh, what takeaways, what, what was really important for your time at Nike? What really developed in your career? Uh, and what do you kind of still implement and use today as you're, as you're working as the CRO? So there's, I think, two things that I'd, I'd love to talk about and I'd love your take on them. Uh, first is that the mission statement at Nike is to pro provide inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And then there's an asterisk on the word athlete. And it says, if you have a body, you are an athlete. Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredibly empowering. And whether or not you identify as an athlete today, I think to me, one of the cool things that I, I took away from Nike, seeing it every day for almost five years, I was there for literally four years and 11 months, is that there's just this like kind of breakthrough mentality that I really was, was I, I think, able to learn at Nike, which was like, I feel like I can do anything. Mm -hmm. And you could say that makes me cocky. I would say it makes me confident. Right. And I think I really walked away from five years at Nike truly feeling like there was no wall, no barrier. And if I set my mind to something big or small, I, I know that eventually, even if it will take hiccups and some stumbling, that I can get that done. And that's the first one that I think that my, Nike's mission really ingrained in me that if there's a will, there's a way mentality. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. And I, I find that interesting, right? Uh, kind of on the younger side, both of us on the younger side of and being in leadership roles, there's always that concern of coming across as cocky uh, when in, in reality, we're really hyper-focused on being confident in, in what we're saying and developing that level of trust. I've always utilized the thought process that uh, it's not cockiness or it's not arrogance if you've done it before and you're able to do it again. And so if you're thinking through, hey, I've accomplished really hard tasks in my career beforehand, that's not arrogance. That's not cockiness. That's the confidence that I've been here once before. I'll be able to do it again. And so I've I've appreciated that. And then I love the, the asterisks on athlete. If you have a body, you're an athlete. And nowadays, more than ever, I think being an athlete teaches so much to our young, young people. I was a volleyball coach for a long, long time uh, and, and very passionate about what the athletic mentality can teach 
and develop in not only young people, but even us as an adult. Uh, you know, if you go and get your butt kicked on a pickleball court by a 70 year old, it's a little humbling and you get taught that as an, as an adult. But I, I love that you're, you're focusing on that. This is something that everybody can do and everybody can learn from. That's beautiful. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd say the second thing, and I'd love your take on this, especially in your world, because I know you spend a lot of time with your clients at MEB. One of the things that I thought was weird for the first couple of years while I was at Nike is that the company spent like an inordinate amount of money flying around the world to spend time with consumers. Mm. And consumers were people who bought, you know, and wore sneakers, t-shirts, and backpacks. And in my mind, it was like, why don't we just talk to each other? We're consumers too. Or why don't we just talk to people in Portland? And what I realized is that Nike had the absolute cheat code and they just doubled down on it, which was spend as much time as you possibly can with your customer mm -hmm. and anticipate what their needs are going to be next year so that you're always perceived as being the best company with the best innovation, with the best product. And they did spend a ton on customer obsession. Mm -hmm. It's infused in the DNA of the business. But I think for me, carrying that into the B2B world where I'm now spending a lot of time with my customers, right. I think that is something that I now think about differently because I saw it ingrained at the highest level of executives at Nike, not just the frontline people that were, were creating the new ideas for shoes. Right. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. I think in terms of developing that connections with clients. So not only is it really important to understand what their long-term mission statements are, but to think that that lives in a vacuum and that it doesn't evolve and change as the market changes, right? Market changes every single day. And so spending that time with your clients, you're getting a better insight into where their their headspace is, where they think the the market's going, and ultimately where they think their company is going. I think for us too, the the big you know intention and focus in spending time with our clients is uh, just being in front of mind. So really uh, allowing them to see us, understand that we're ultimately there for their their success, and and really wanting to be available to them and, and engage them in a thoughtful conversation. And if Nothing more than to share a great meal and to say, hey, thank you for being part of our success. Um, we hope you're doing well. We hope your family's well. Um, and just creating that personal connection. It's not always about business. It's developing that personal connection. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So, Mike, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have poured into you into during your career. Who's been your biggest mentor and, you know, what impact did they have on your career and your life? So I... I I'm either going to like excite you or disappoint you with my answer on this one, but I would say that there hasn't necessarily been a single biggest impact in my career. It's been about the season of my career. Mm. And I think one of the like superpowers that I've really leaned into is acknowledging that the mentor that was really, really helpful for me in transitioning well from Nike into G5 was a very different mentor that I needed when I first went from being an individual contributor to a frontline manager. Right. Versus when I went from frontline to second line versus second line now into an executive role. And I think there's a lot to be said about making sure that the mentors that you are utilizing are really helping you advance in your career or accomplish the goals that are important to you. Yeah. But I would say if I was to like lean in to one individual uh, that's really made a, a big impact on my career that I still think about and reference every day, uh, it's a woman named Gina Sentioli. She was the first person that that properly leaned into me and, and truly just promoted me at Nike and did it with intention and taught me why she did that, but then also challenged me to think bigger, think better, 
do more, um, contribute at a bigger scale. And to this day, we stay in, in super close touch. She's also left Nike. She was there for almost 25 years. She now leads client success for a, a publicly traded software company called Paylocity. But I've learned a lot through her servant level leadership, but also um, how she led with humility and really, really leaned, leaned into her people and taught me the importance of mentorship, which is now one of the biggest things I talk about on the daily. Yeah. yeah. Uh, great comment and quote. Uh, whenever I'm interviewing for somebody that's going to be a direct report for me, one of the things that I'm always passionate about is understanding where they want to go in their career. And I've always said, you know, if you look at me and you say, Matt, I really want to be a, an airline pilot. I'd say, that's wonderful. I can't help you. I have no ability to get you to be an airline pilot. But if you look at me and you're like, hey, I want to better understand macro and micro trends. I want to understand, you know, what the organization does for its clients. Those are the things that I can, I can assist you with. And so really understanding what your employees need, or maybe somebody that you're attempting to mentor, really getting that granular level and helping them understand, Hey, this is what I can provide you in their season. As you referenced is, is great. What a, what a great com com uh, combination. That's wonderful. Uh, it, you know, moving right along, obviously we met, uh, during your time at G5, uh, which was a, a great experience for us and, uh, developed our friendship. But, you know, in, in your world, really in the B2B sales, in, in the vendor sales, what's one thing that you feel like, uh, operational team members can do to partner with vendors like yourself that ultimately, makes the success of, of the rollout or makes the success of the program itself better. What are vendors missing in our engagements with, or what are operators uh, missing in our engagements with our vendor partners? So I think back to your talk a few weeks back at NAA Apartmentalize, you opened up by talking about nanoseconds and how this high percentage of stock trades happen in nanoseconds and things are happening faster than we can even blink. And yet, most of us in the tech space, on the operator side, and in the, in, in the multifamily industry, we're making decisions based on last Monday's war report or that hot sheet that comes out at 9 a.m. on a Monday. And I, I think where I'm going with this is that I think we're just scratching the surface on how we can partner with customers to really reach the heights of what good product adoption can look like. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a shame right now in our industry that that we are seeing so much change in the technology space based on challenges that could have been avoided had there been a better mutual investment in good adoption of the product. Right. And I think about it a lot selfishly, even at Rent Dynamics, we have so many great features and, and tactics, let alone strategies we can deploy. But most of our customers are too busy. We get busy and we only get to like 30% of what we're capable of. Right. And I think one of the best things you can do is carve out intentional time, probably once a quarter, probably any more frequently is too much, if we're being honest, sure. to have a, a true business review, to think about over the next three months, what does Matt and his team at MEB need to accomplish? And how can we meet you in the middle to accomplish that together? Yeah. And I think those kinds of like frequent enough cadences to really define what's important so that you can also define what's not important. Because I think what ends up happening is you say yes to everything. I say yes to everything. We enter the busy problem and we just never focus. And so I think that focus is probably one of the biggest opportunities to find mutually. How can we partner together to accomplish one really important thing? Yeah. Vendor partner relationships, especially in setting, uh, you know, year over year goals or just even guiding where we believe our company is going 
really is important for us. And it's funny, we, a lot of times we feel like that lives in a vacuum of principles or that lives in the, the vacuum of the executive teams. And it's like, Hey guys, we, we've got all of these people that are invested in our ultimate success. Why aren't we talking to them? And what's really interesting to me is when, uh, we, we roll out a product, we're, we're super excited about that product. And inevitably we bring up almost in happenstance in a conversation, Hey, I wish it, this product did this an ERP or even a PMS pro, uh, a software. I wish that did this. And then the vendor looks at us and goes, it, it does. It's always done that. And for us, we get busy. We forget that that is an option for us. And so then we're going back and trying to, you know, kind of retrofit our, our process to make it fit. And when we could have just rolled it out, if we had been thoughtful and really reviewed, Hey, we've, we're 30% onboarded. We're good. Let's move to the 50, 60%. And again, I think that quarterly review is, is spot on. And, and I think that like one of the things, and I feel like this is a trend that's like turning into a, Hey, it's here for for a long time. Is that we're seeing a lot of clients, especially on the the bigger side of the industry, like your your team is, get better at buying software. Mm. And I think that's part of the problem that's kind of happened over the past three to five years. Is there's been so much new technology in the prop tech space yeah. that's been exciting. I mean, right. a quick pitch, yeah, that solves a problem. Hey, the mar- the market's froth- frothy. We've got some extra budget. But if you say yes to too much and you only get to twenty percent goodness across the board all of those technology partnerships eventually fail Right. versus saying, hey, we're going to clear the table and we're going to go solve this challenge over the next three months and we're going to go all in. And once we nail it, we're going to then move on. I think that's where the opportunity is because it sets you up for better success and you're working on fewer things with more focus. And I think that's that's been a challenge for us, but I think we're improving as an an industry on that on that right now. Yeah, I love that. Apartmentalize. 885 vendors this year alone, 11,000 attendees. That was, I would argue, the most exciting apartmentalize that I've ever seen. I mean, and and also really well received. I thought everybody really walked away from apartmentalize feeling that they've, they got their money's worth and really got those interactions. But it's interesting because as I was walking the expo floor, number one, it was overwhelming in a way, but very exciting in the same, in, in the same aspect. But I, I remember thinking to myself, it would be great to roll this product out. And I had to stop and I realized I, we don't have, our organization does not have the human capital to do it right now. I have to be a little bit patient, which if you know me longer than 10 minutes, patience is not my strong suit. Uh, but I got excited for it. And, and, as I was walking through the expo floor, one of our training and development directors was with me and it dawned on me. One of the biggest pitfalls of my organization and something that I do very poorly is bringing in our training and development team. You guys have got to hear this product pitch because if they're in early, they're going to start creating a curriculum. They're going to think about how can we get this out to the masses quickly? They're going to really be able to articulate and set us up for success with a new product rollout. And I, again, I think that's something we've not done well as an industry beforehand is really getting the training and development people involved early products are going to break. People are going to need ongoing training. Let's set that up at rollout. Let's really think about, let's have quarterly reviews. Let's talk about our, you know, our integration components. Are we getting the vast majority of people on uh, quickly and efficiently? Absolutely love that. Moving on a little bit, uh, business to business sales is uh, is a tough industry. Uh, it is. 
but also one that provides a lot of opportunities to uh, grow and develop skill sets and, and be very um, engaged with clients. In your opinion, what is the hardest part of B2B sales? So that's a humongously loaded question. And to all my, you know, sales account management and marketing folks out there, like shout out. Yeah. And uh, I would say that there are a few things. I think right now our industry is is changing so quickly and there are so many things that you can lean into. Relationships matter more than they ever have. And I'm always going to say that. that that just compounds over time. I think it's really easy for folks on the B2B side, specifically sales to lose sight of what they need to do in their given role, which is focus on getting in front of the right people at the right time to deliver the right message and sell the right product to the right customer. And I think that, you know, you hear a lot about like dialing for dollars as an example. And I don't think that's something that our industry wins a lot of hearts and minds when you're just cold calling Scott Cook 15 times a day asking for his attention. I don't think that's a good way to get in with MEB. I think you have to wait till MEB says, hey, your product is finally a priority and you've got to ruthlessly qualify that what you have to offer is going to hit or at least exceed you know, their expectations. Because I think one of the big challenges in our industry has been selling products that weren't right for that customer and having to spend a huge percentage of your calories post-sale fixing things that could have been completely course correct with the better sales process. Right. And I would say that kind of just some coaching advice to anyone in the industry on the sales side would be spend a lot of time learning the industry, like really know the industry, know your target customer, your ideal customer profile, your ICP, and know exactly what problems you can solve for them so that you can run a great discovery call and have great technical relevance so you can tell them what's good about your product, but also tell them what's bad about your product. And I think those are just some of the the table stakes that still need to be invested in to make sure that that sales process is mutually beneficial. And when you get to that finish line, that contract stage, you're both truly excited because I think gone are the days of the best part of the sales process being the signature. It should be post-signature getting to the actual product, if that makes sense. Yeah. Walk me through a little bit about the the ICP. How do you how do you prepare for a discovery call? I, I, by the way, I find this extremely interesting because, again, understanding who you're talking to prior to that that call and hopefully taking away understanding what their needs are. I think that's incredibly important as a as an operator. One, it it hyper focuses the call. Right, we're not kind of going down tangents. We're not asking each other how the weather is and you know in Denver right? Nobody cares. We're, we're all very busy. We want to be extremely focused during these, these calls, but walk me through your process. Let's get into some of that secret sauce. Cause I'm sure there's a couple people jotting down notes, uh, finding this extremely valuable. Cause I find it valuable. And I'm not even in B2B. Sure. So no matter what company you look for, you probably know who your happiest customers are. And what are the common attributes between those customers? Is it the job title? Is it the company size? Is it the type of assets they own or manage? Do they own or do they manage? Like lots of different things to really, you know, formulate who is your ideal customer profile. You should be as specific as you possibly can. That's the first thing. The second thing is you got to really know those customers. You've got to know what, what those customers love. What do those customers hate? What are those customers good at? And what do those customers need help with? And there's a lot of common denominators in that space as well. And as you kind of refine this, I think it gives you a lot of, of conversation power. And I subscribe to the challenger sale methodology. There are a bazillion 
sales methodologies out there. But within Challenger Sale, one of the big things that's known in the curriculum within Challenger is teaching for differentiation. Mm. So one of the things that I stand on as a sales lever is that upfront early and often I try to stand out by teaching them things they don't already know about their role or the industry because I'm talking to people just like them all the time. And it gives me an opportunity to really make sure that the seat, our seat feels like this, really equal. I'm not begging for your time. You're finding value really, really early and often in our conversations. And then the other thing that I'm really trying to do is understand what's working and what's not. Because I'd say a high percentage of my discovery calls, you're not ready for us. Like, I'm not going to move you into a demo. I mean, I'm happy to show you the product if you're interested. But hey, I think it sounds like you have room to better optimize that product you already have. I know that product really well. Right. And I think that's where technical and tactical relevance is a superpower in our industry. Before you get on that first sales call, you should know what's good about your product, but also what's good about your competitors. Right. Because the worst thing you can do is try to change someone's mind when they could be much better off staying where they are and just getting a better lift out of that product. But I'd say a discovery call should be mutually beneficial, understanding if there's a reason to move forward so that that move forward is a fun kind of destination for both of you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Biggest takeaway for me is that development of trust. So when I'm sitting on a call and I'm hearing about a great new product, I could very well be excited about it. And again, before I get on these calls, I'm researching the company as well. And I really know where our holes are and where we don't need to be, where I feel like MEB as an organization does this very, very well. I'm not looking to fill that. What's interesting, though, is when vendors are pushing something that you don't need, there's that all of a sudden I'm starting to get a little concerned, I'm a little lack of trust there. But for you to be honest and say, hey, you're in a really good space. We may not be the right fit for you. That is a real telltale sign. And I, I remember a time with us at G5 uh, when we were working on a pr uh, property that I was overseeing. And I asked you a question about an overhead drone shot. And I thought, there's no way Mike's not going to say, you need the drone shot. And what was really interesting is you said, well, you've got these exposed ACs. The roof doesn't necessarily look all that great. You don't need that shot. I would rather you spend your money on X, Y, and Z implementation. And I thought, he's, he's absolutely right. And that developed that real deep, deep level of trust. So I love that. I also want to say, uh, as an operator, I think um, one of the things that I'm very, very passionate about is being at apartmentalized and walking the exhibit floor. I can categorically tell you, I don't need another set of sunglasses or a cheap tote bag. I've never, ever in my career brought a company in because they gave me a tote bag. I would rather they deploy that dollar into human capital, or I'd rather they, they deploy that dollar into conversations like this. Buy me a cup of coffee. Let's sit down. And it doesn't have to always be a sales pitch. I want to know about you. I want to know about your company. I want to spend that time and get to develop that relationship. And that, again, I've always been looking for that level of trust. I need vendors that I can trust when I'm in a pinch and I need some help. These are, you know, these are the people I trust and go through. Don't buy any more tote bags or sunglasses. We don't need them in multifamily. I will say that is like the great debate on the vendor side. <laughs> sure. There is there is still a fraction of the industry that craves the tote bag. Right. And so For sure. there is a great debate on that. And one, one last thing I'll say on the B2B side is I think we're seeing a lot of people once they join this industry intentionally or accidentally, they do end up wanting to stay. Because they realize that in a niche, you know, area, vertical and industry, whatever you want to call it, the great things can happen if you play the long game. 
if you develop a personal brand, earn trust and respect of current customers and future customers. And I think that's like my other piece of advice would be, you know, don't play the short game. The short game would be going for that first contract, even though it's not going to be a long-term good fit for the two of you. Pass on the business, give them some free consulting, say no to the drone shot and trust it in three or four years when the time is right, wherever you are, you're going to be in a good spot. And your stock price will be so much higher to your next employer or your current employer if you deliver a ton of value and give, give, give. Yeah. Every pitch that you do, you're getting a little bit better. I, w- I recently sat down with a, a development company about a year and a half ago and very excited, you know, 400 units, class A, high, you know, high area, uh, high retention area. We, we were thinking this would be an absolute home run. Our organization aligned beautifully with their organization. And about three minutes into the conversation, they let us know, we've already signed a property management team. We're good. And so in my head, I go, well, what the heck am I doing here? Why, why are we having this talk? And I had to stop myself. And I said, no, the reality is, is this is an opportunity for me to refine my skill set, but also provide value to this individual. If we do nothing more than talk about how the development is going, I'm going to learn something very, very important. What amenity structures are you putting in? But all of those pitches, every time you pick up the phone, you're going to get better. And it's going to be an opportunity to develop and kind of pay into your own career and success. I like that thought process. That's awesome. Uh, let's move into kind of our last part of our uh, podcast here. But really, one of the things that I find very valuable, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. I think that's very, very important for anybody in any industry. I think you should always be focused on developing yourself and, and learning from others. So what's a, a book that you've picked up that you've found extremely valuable to your career uh, and something that you think your listeners should pick up and read today? Have you ever heard of the author Patrick Lencioni? No. So I would say that if you Googled Patrick Lencioni books, you could have a field day ordering number one, number two, number three, number four. And I, the reason I say is that say that is for a junior level or a super senior uh, tenured level leader. I think he has a, a really cool playbook that he's come up with uh, to create actionable tactical recommendations through the written word. And I'd say there's, I'm going to answer poorly because I'm going to answer with two books, not just one. Uh, the first is a book called The Advantage. The The Advantage is a book that we rolled out uh, at our senior level leadership team at G5. And the number one takeaway from that book is disagree and commit. In order to have a highly functioning executive team, you have to have the ability behind closed doors when you're invisible to your company to have incredibly, you know, honest debates and to disagree, to be comfortable with it, but to agree on an outcome mm. and to walk out aligned. And I think it's just a, a really powerful message that they break down over the course of like, f- you know, 500 pages. Wow. But disagree and commit to me is the number one takeaway from the advantage where you build highly functioning executive teams. And I think that's a super, super, super power. Mm. The second would be a book that's much faster to read. It's short, big font, easy to read. I think I read it in one night. And it's called The Four Obsessions of the Extraordinary Executive. It's a very cool book. And what it does is it talks about business A versus business B that's across the street, one that's going awesome, one that's going kind of well on the outside looking in. And it breaks down these four things that make that great executive extraordinary. And it's become a framework for me. It's one of my highest performing LinkedIn posts. I broke it down. Uh, but that's another one that I, I really go back to. I almost treat it like a textbook. Oh, that's very, very cool. Love that. Uh, and and I think you're right with 
looking at executive level leaderships, you need to disagree. The last thing an executive level team needs is a bunch of yes men. And and by the way, probably in you know early on in business, that's what people surrounded themselves with were people that would just agree and and move on. You need those robust debates. We're seeing that really happening in how we're looking at diversity and inclusion at every level, right? I want somebody with a different experience than my own to really challenge and ultimately either uh, push me to change my thought or ultimately if they see my way of thinking or the group's way of thinking that they align also with us, that we lock arms, that we, we were an aligned front. I absolutely love that. That's, and I love the challenging component. Let's, let's make sure our thought processes are accurate. And one thing I'll add is like, I subscribe to the philosophy of StrengthsFinder. It's kind of controversial because StrengthsFinder is all about knowing your top five strengths and you almost get to ignore your weaknesses. Mm. You say double down on these top five strengths and then find people that can lift you up in the areas that you're weak. It's like the polar opposite of athletics yeah. where you're always thinking about getting better with your left hand if you can't make that layup or whatever it might be. But I think that's where you can start to think about company or culture or team like a sports team. You know, if you've got a great shooter, that means you got to get a great passer. Right. And I think the same thing goes with this comfort in disagreeing and not just saying yes, but hiring people that can fill in gaps, get the right people on the bus, and then great things will happen. Yeah, we, uh, MEB uses a, a system called ProScan. And what's really, really interesting is every person that joins our organization goes through the ProScan. And you have access to understand where their strengths and weaknesses are, where their communication styles lie. Uh, what their kind of energy styles are, how they kind of go about um, uh, reacting when they're under stress. And our executive team uh, recently just went through this exercise together where we really understood each other's strengths and weaknesses. And when an idea comes across, how we're really being or how we're really absorbing that information, how are we how are we viewing it in our own personal lenses of behavior? And it's uh, it's something that you have to get out of your comfort zone with. You you think your idea is great, but somebody with a completely different pro scan may think it's it's utterly useless. And you have to work together to find that right dynamic. And and again, it's a really cool way of thinking of, of being about being balanced. I don't want to just hire all EDs, right? I don't want to hire all extroverts that are a little bit dominant. I need some process people. I need some compliance people around me. I need these these individuals that are more thoughtful and, hey, I have this great idea. And everybody goes, well, slow down. How are we going to roll this out? And and as an E, I'm thinking, I don't care. Get it done. Yep. And everybody else is like, well, hold on. Let's let's be thoughtful about this. And what we found is when you blend the two of them, your audience absorbs it so much better than if you were just to have that E. Let's get it out there. Let's get it done. Uh, and let's just move on to the next big and, and better thing. Last question for me, Mike. Uh, what's one thing your listeners right now should be doing to invest in themselves or, or invest in their career? What's one thing, you know, other than listening to Modern Multifamily, of course, but what's what's one thing that they should be doing uh, for their careers right now that most people probably aren't? I would say that really 
doubling down on building a community would be something that right now can really benefit anybody in our industry. And it doesn't matter if you are on your side of the industry, the operator side, or my side, my side of the technology provider side. I think that this can be a senior level leader thing or a frontline leasing agent thing. Whether you're on LinkedIn getting active and posting more or participating in other people's posts just to build connection, trust, and community, or I think you look at Chief. I think Chief is doing some phenomenal things for women in leadership right now by really building this arsenal of the next level of leaders with within the Chief community. I think building community is going to be one of the most powerful ways to play the long game in multifamily mm. and really making sure that you connect with people that have similar or conflicting views on things. But I think there's a lot of good things happening online right now. And I think we've all gotten a lot more comfortable contributing and collaborating virtually. Look at the podcast, look right. at LinkedIn. Uh, but that would be something that I think we can all relate to. We can all benefit from. And it's a great way to go find that next mentor, that next job or advice to break through the plateau that you're on right now. And I think there's a lot to be said about building and investing in community. Yeah. Uh, one of our connections on LinkedIn, Moshe Crane, recently said uh, uh, prior to Apartmentalize that he was going to spend the vast majority of his time in networking and not necessarily going to the education seminars. I hope he went to my talk. I mean, I'm sure he didn't, but I, I thought that that thought process was very interesting. Networking, I agree, is critical, but I think your networking widens when you're learning from individuals that, again, those talks, those education seminars, I really think should be challenging. They should force people to hear a different opinion. They should really challenge not only individual thought processes on our industry, but challenge the industry. We have done a poor job of X or the best way to move forward is Y. And again, I think the education seminars do that, but I, I, I want apartmentalized to continue to kind of have some controversial uh, thinkers up there. Moshi would be absolutely <laughs> one of those uh, challenging thinkers, which I, I, I think would be good. It would at least spark debate. It would at least spark a thought process. Complete. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. But developing networks is, is, is really important. And again, as you, as you expand that, that, that bandwidth that you have, you're really, uh, getting a better thought process and and all. Well, Mike, uh, it's been absolutely fantastic to to sit in your host chair. A lot harder than than you make it look. I'll, I'll say for sure. But uh, thank you for what you do. Modern multifamily really uh, brings some high level thinkers into our space. Challenges uh, our thought process, I think, and also makes us kind of smile. You, you know, multifamily B two B sales is tough. Is both tough industries. And when you have people that are helping guide and nurture or engage uh, others in the space, it's, it's really special. So thank you for what you do. And again, thank you for letting me sit in your chair for, for a day. Yeah. Thank you for offering to host and a huge thank you to Patrick and Carrie Antrim for opening up multifamily leadership. I've got chills at how great today was. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank Thanks, you very man. much.